Good morning and welcome to Kirkpatrick's online worship service. We hope you feel welcome worshipping with us this morning. How are you? What a week it's been. Biden was sworn in as the next president of the United States. We're entering the third peak of our coronavirus pandemic. Lockdown has just been extended in Northern Ireland and I hope you've dried off from that storm, Christoph. With all that's going on in the world, let's fix our eyes upon Jesus. With our individual burdens, let's look upon him. In Hebrews 12, it says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners much hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Lord God, we worship you for all that you are and have done for us. We want to look to Jesus, our wonderful, perfect Saviour, your Son, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Without this joy, we are unable to endure these days. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to lose heart. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Amen. Our first reading is taken from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Our second reading is taken from Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Our third reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Well, we all know what an inauguration looks like, don't we? A ceremony of induction into a role of supreme importance, an occasion dripping with significance and hope, a global audience, an inspiring young poet, a priest, solemn oaths, a real sense of occasion. Well, in today's passage, we're also dealing with an inauguration. For the inauguration of Messiah, what would that look like? For the assuming of the mantle of the Son of God on earth, what would we expect to see? Well, when the great King David handed on the baton to Solomon, his son, there was pomp and there was ceremony. Listen, can you hear it? Now, that is not the Champions League theme tune. The original is Handel's coronation anthem, set to the words of 1 Kings 1, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king, and they sounded the trumpets. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then all the people went up playing pipes. And all the people rejoiced, so that the ground shook with the sound. Now, if that was the case for the morally dubious and flawed King Solomon, what will it be like for the ultimate King of the Jews, who had been identified at his birth by the angels and by the star? Would there be pipes and drums, prophets and priests and poets, shouts and songs and anointing oil? Surely least, except there isn't. Instead of Zadok and Nathan, we have an outcast, fiery preacher. Instead of priestly garments and kingly robes, we have a camel's hide. Instead of a temple, we have a wilderness. Instead of anointing oil, we have the grubby water of a desert river. Some inauguration. In fact, it was so understated that most people there would not even know that it had happened. If we read Luke's account, it seems that Jesus just came along with all the others. No fuss. Just joins the line. Maybe two metres behind the guy in front. I don't know. Just takes his turn along with everyone else. No fuss. It's actually John who makes the fuss. Because you see, John's baptism was all about repentance. It was a bit of a spectacle, actually. You saw that last week. Even the religious leaders came down to have a look. Because for the religious Jew, baptism was something that happened only to Gentiles. If they wanted to convert to Judaism, they underwent what was essentially a symbolic cleansing of their Gentile uncleanness. It wasn't for good Jews. It certainly wasn't something you volunteered for. But there seems to have been a bit of a revival happening down by the Jordan. 
enough to catch the attention of some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of whom, if we read the other Gospels, may have been convicted enough to join in. But most, it seems, from Matthew just came for a nosy. It sounds like ordinary Jews were recognising their need for forgiveness, their need to repent and to change. And so John's ministry was having an effect. And then as John calls next and looks up, he sees Jesus. And here we have a problem. And we're on the side of John in this conversation, aren't we? Because the big question that this raises for us as we read the story is why? Why, Jesus, are you going through something that traditional Orthodox Jews would have regarded as humiliating and demeaning? Why are you voluntarily going through this act of repentance when you have nothing to repent of? Already, before Jesus had performed his first miracle, before he had healed his first leper, before he had preached his first sermon, John knew. He knew that this wasn't right. If it's about repentance, then you need to baptise me, Jesus. John only consents when Jesus utters the quite enigmatic phrase, let it be just for now. It's necessary in order to fulfil all righteousness. Essentially, Jesus is saying, John, suspend your questions just for now. It's proper just for now. This is part of the preparation, the inauguration, and what would become the public affirmation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus wasn't repenting. He was doing something else. He was fulfilling all righteousness. That's a phrase that Jews would have understood to mean perfectly complying with God's will and God's law. To anyone who was watching, Jesus was associating himself with John's message, but more importantly, he was submitting to the Father's will. As Jesus waited by the banks of the Jordan for his turn, he was both physically and symbolically standing with his people, in amongst them, ready to go through the water with them, identifying with them. As they went into the water and they were saying effectively, we want our hearts to be tuned and turned again to the Father's will, Jesus was saying, I'm with you in that. It's like somebody who was genetically incapable of getting COVID still voluntarily queuing up with their family and friends to receive the vaccine. Having already fulfilled many prophecies through his birth and infancy, Jesus now begins the role of fulfilling righteousness. And in Jewish thinking, righteousness was the end result of the life of faith, not the way of getting there. It was what God's people could expect to enjoy in the final kingdom. So Jesus is essentially saying, this is necessary to inaugurate the next stage of God's plan of salvation. Because that's what happens. All four Gospels recount the baptism and immediately afterwards, Jesus goes through a stage of temptation and then begins his ministry in earnest. If this whole process of Jesus' inauguration seems understated and insignificant, what happened next certainly wasn't. Although if you read all four Gospels, it seems that only Jesus himself and John seem aware of it. But two amazing things did happen. Far more amazing than the pipes and the drums or Zadok and Nathan. The Father spoke and the Spirit came down. The ground may have shook at Solomon's coronation, but at Jesus' inauguration, the heavens opened. The heavens hadn't opened for 400 years. 
The language here is of a direct communication from God himself. The very first verse of Ezekiel's prophecy and also in Isaiah 64, we read of the heavens opening for God to speak to his prophet. After 400 years of prophetic silence, God speaks again. So orally, there was this voice from heaven. And then visually, there was this dove-like presence falling on Jesus. Why a dove? Well, the dove in the Old Testament is associated with two major events. The very beginning, in the second verse of the whole Bible, we read of the Spirit of God brooding over the waters. And this is where we find the image of the dove being associated with the Spirit. The Spirit dove overseeing, involved in creation itself. And then also in Genesis, we have the dove sent out from the ark after God's global judgment to return with an olive leaf marking the start of a new creation. The spirit at creation, the spirit involved in recreation. But there's also something else significant about the dove-like presence that came on Jesus after his baptism. The dove, you remember, was not the first bird sent out from the ark. There was the raven who went out and didn't return. And then the dove went out twice, and only the second time did it return with the olive leaf. You see, the raven is a carnivorous bird, and it would have been happy to land on the old animal or human corpses. It could keep itself alive until the waters receded. But the dove would not land on anything unclean. It came back to the ark until it could find something else to rest on. That's why the dove also became associated with purity. And so right at the start of Jesus' ministry, we have these indications that there is someone altogether different coming on the scene. First, John hints at it when he says, Jesus, you don't need to be baptized. But then we see it again when the dove comes down and rests on him because the dove will not land on anything unclean. This was his anointing oil. The Father commissioning the Son by the Spirit. It's one of the most powerful Trinitarian passages in the whole of Scripture. The Son obediently fulfilling the Father's will. The Spirit acknowledging his purity and authenticating his ministry. And then the Father speaking. What does he say? Well, it's a coming together of two significant Old Testament verses. Psalm 2 was regarded as a messianic psalm, foretelling the coming of Israel's last and greatest king. And in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist says, God says, you are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. In the book of Hebrews, the writer demonstrates how this can apply only to Christ. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, we have what was regarded as a messianic prophecy. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So we have an affirmation of sonship, statement of delight and an authentication by the spirit. For John and for Jesus himself, it was clear, you are the one. The inauguration of the one who would truly bring peace to the nations. The only one in whom all of us can truly place our trust and our hopes. The one who is King Psalm 2, but also the victim Isaiah 42. 
the one who didn't take the throne before he had taken up the cross, the one who didn't wear the royal diadem until he had worn the crown of thorns. To the crowds, this was just another baptism. Until John, who had seen the dove and heard the voice, proclaims, as we read in the Gospel of John chapter 1, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the divine Son, but also the suffering servant. So this was the inauguration of our leader, the one inducted and ready to begin his ministry. So let's not forget whose we are. Our hope lies not in who resides in Stormont or Ken Downing Street or Buckingham Palace or the White House. It lies somewhere else. How do we know? Wait and see. I believe the story of the baptism of Jesus, this great Trinitarian passage, encourages us in three important ways. Because here in Jesus the Son, we have a God who identifies with us no matter where we are. God the Son, in fulfilment of his Father's will, identified with sinful humanity by passing through waters he did not need to pass through. And that wasn't the last time he would do that. The waters is another biblical image for death and God's judgment on the world, seen most explicitly in the flood story in Genesis, of course, but also in the pursuing army of Pharaoh, the Exodus being drowned in the Red Sea. Jesus' identification with us as our representative during his baptism was a foreshadowing of the day when he would pass through deeper waters as our representative. When he went to another place he did not need to go to. But whereas at his baptism he took on the role of a sinner, at that other place, at Calvary, he became sin itself for us. He passed through the waters of death so that we would never need to experience eternal death. As God promised his people in Isaiah's words, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. That image of being swept under or overwhelmed is a pretty accurate metaphor for where many of us are at the moment, I imagine. With lockdown extensions, and educational and economic and mental health crises. Never mind Brexit messing with our supply lines from the UK and Europe. The biggest commodity in short supply at the moment is hope. And if the gospel doesn't speak into the situation, then it is of little value. Some of you know I've been putting up daily devotions on video on the theme of alone with God simply because I was struck how often in scripture God's people find themselves in isolation. But by grace, we have a God who identifies with us no matter where we are, in whatever rivers we are wading through. We may be up to our neck in it at the moment, but the flood will not have the last word. He took the flood for us. And then secondly, in the Holy Spirit, we have a God who anoints us no matter how we feel. Essential to Jesus' commissioning was the stamp of approval seen in the form of the Spirit resting on him. And that Spirit who rested on him is the one that he himself has given to us. I am going, but the Spirit will come. Wait for him, says Jesus. And so after he ascended, the same spirit 
who came down and rested on him as a dove, came down and rested on his disciples, not as a dove because they were not pure, but significantly rested as tongues of fire, symbolizing cleansing and energizing. The Spirit, Jesus says, will guide us into all truth, John 16. He is the comforter, John 14. He's the one who will give us the words to say, who will help us endure persecution and trials, Mark 13. The Spirit who is with us in our weaknesses, who when we don't know what to pray, will pray with us and for us with wordless groans, Romans 8. The Spirit who empowers us for mission, Acts 1. Emmanuel, God with us in the presence of the Son, is now paraclete, the God with us, by the indwelling of his Spirit. The same Spirit who ministered to Jesus at his lowest and most vulnerable times, when in his humanity he must have been tempted to doubt that he could go through with his mission. That same Spirit has been given to us to be with us in our trials and temptations and in our doubts. As the Spirit anointed Christ, so he anoints us. This is what helps us to endure. This is what enables us to hold fast. 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Anointing. Seal of ownership. In the spirit we have God who anoints us no matter how we feel. And then finally in the Father, we have a God who delights in us no matter how we're doing. There's one of our Serbian students I heard interviewed a few weeks ago who reminded me of this truth. The Father's delight in the Son was proclaimed before Jesus had done anything. It was based on their eternal relationship, not on the effectiveness of Jesus' ministry. And she said what a transforming comfort that had been to her, to know the Father's delight, irrespective of performance. (coughs) Is she right? Surely the Father's words were directed at the perfect Son of God. Is it not a stretch to apply them to us? Well, yes, of course, in this instance, they were solely and specifically directed towards Jesus, the Son whom he loves and him only. But that phrase, the one in whom I am well pleased, or better translated, the one in whom I delight. The Greek word is eudokia, and we see that elsewhere. We've actually come across it already in the Christmas story, in the mouth of the angels. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill towards me. Well, the recent translations have it much better. Peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. Among those in whom he delights. You see, the Son in whom the Father delights has been given to bring peace to the people in whom he delights. God's delight in his people who he created and chose runs through the whole of the Old Testament. Little promise in the book of Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he'll no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. God works in us for his eudokia, his delight, says Paul in Philippians 2. 
And so my Serbian friend was right. Just as the father's delight was in the son before he had stilled a storm or raised a cripple, so his delight is in you and me before we've served the needy, shared our faith or said our prayers. How come? Well, one of the key doctrines of the New Testament is how when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, we are a new creation and we are now in Christ, in Christo. It appears over a hundred times in the New Testament, five times in one chapter of Ephesians alone. We are in Christo, in Christ. It means God doesn't look at us in isolation. He never sees us the way we see ourselves in the mirror. He sees Monty in Christ, Paul in Christ, Emma in Christ, Brian in Christ. Therefore, as we're told in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christo. We are his delight, his treasured possession. And that has nothing to do with what we've done or haven't done. There's a little thought experiment I like to conduct sometimes as a pastoral help with people. It goes like this. You wake up on Monday, inspired by worship the previous day. You read your Bible and you say your prayers and you go to work listening to worship music. Your whole day is filled with thoughts of how good God is. You don't lose your temper with the kids. You even get a chance to graciously help and encourage an annoying colleague. You get the chance even to share your faith. You give generously to somebody in need. You do errands for a housebound neighbour on your way home. You don't waste time on the internet. The whole day is productive and spiritually invigorating. And then you wake up on Tuesday, late. So no time for Bible reading or prayer. You shout at your spouse. You ignore your kids. You lie to your boss. You dismiss somebody who needed your help. You're basically extremely selfish all day. You surf a few questionable internet sites, you go home, you drink too much and you go to bed miserable. Now, on which of those two days did God delight in you most? You see, we're going to struggle in our Christian lives until we understand that the answer is both days. We need to grasp that he delights in us, not our actions, but in us on both days equally. You see, to believe somehow that God's love for us or delight in us is different from one day to the next is to believe that somehow our performance changes how almighty God sees us and that somehow our performance can change what occurred on the cross for us. Christ's passing through the waters, his dying for us is not just effective on our good days. You see, to think that God's delight is changed by our performance is also to forget that on Monday we are still sinners. Believing that we don't deserve God's grace and delight on Tuesday can lead us to believe that we do deserve it on Monday. But no, we don't deserve it either day. We're still sinners on both days. On one day we are contributing to our growth in God's grace. We're being effective witnesses. We're not doing ourselves any damage. The next day we're endangering our witness and our spiritual life and in danger of losing our peace and our joy. But on neither day does God look at us any differently. And on both days he looks at us in Christ with love in his heart. And he says, my child, you are my daughter. 
We don't hear this often enough, do we? Do you know why? Because preachers feel that if they preach that, people will think they can live whatever way they like. That's what Paul had to deal with in Romans 5 and 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace can be seen all the more? No, of course not, he says. That's what John Bunyan was told when he preached the grace of God. People will live whatever way they want. And he says, no, once people really understand God's grace, they don't live whatever way they like. They finally start living the way he likes because there is no better message than this. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. In Christo, in Christ, we are his delight. That was the ministry into which he was inaugurated that day in John. A ministry that would lead to the cross but beyond that to a new kingdom and a new creation. A ministry which would bring the nations home, that would reach down even to you and to me, so that in Christ, in Christo, we who were once rebels can become children. We who were once far off can become near. And we who were once his enemies can become his delight. So in the name of the Father who delights in us, the Son who identifies with us, and the Spirit who anoints us. Amen. Good morning. Let's join together in prayer now as we bring before God both our church family and the city we live in. You might want to take time now to be still, to pause the video perhaps, and to share specific burdens around your heart. Let's pray together. Father God, as we bring our prayers to you this morning, we are thankful that you are powerful. We're thankful that you're in control. Thank you that our prayers don't fall on deaf ears. That we can have confidence in a merciful God who promises in all things to work for the good of those who love him. We think firstly of our church family here at Kirkpatrick. We pray for Lena as she undergoes further treatment this week. Give her little body strength to deal with the treatment. And we ask that she will remain free from infection. We pray for healing for her. Give her courage in all that she faces. And we ask that you would also strengthen Rachel and Al at this time. We pray for George. Thank you that he has heard he'll be able to start treatment soon. We ask that he and Alice will know your presence with them. And that you would bring healing. We pray to you for Brian as he continues his recovery. Thank you that he is home again and we ask for a restoration of strength and health for him. We bring before you all in our church family who are sick and unwell. Please restore them to health. Father, we pray to you for our leadership here at Kirkpatrick as they continue to navigate the vacancy process and lead this as a church family. We ask that you would give our elders especially, along with Robert, wisdom and discernment through every step of the process. We pray also for those who teach us. Please continue to fill them with words of truth as they seek to preach your word faithfully. And give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We pray too for Rooted as it starts this week. Thank you for all the women that have signed up 
And we ask that you bless them richly as they seek to dig deeper into your word together. Challenge them and encourage them, we pray. We also want to look outwards to the city we live in. As we face further restrictions, we continue to pray for our health workers and those battling in the front line against this virus. We are thankful for them and we ask that you will work to turn the tide and relieve the pressure on them. Help us to choose hope when the world despairs. We pray for our politicians, our elected officials, whom you've given authority to leave this country. We pray that they will make decisions with integrity and that ultimately they will know that they are answerable to you. We pray that you will work in them and through them to bring about your will for this country, for your glory. We think too of our teachers and young people with education still online. Once again, there's frustration that the hard work put in for exams feels wasted. There's uncertainty about the future. In the midst of all this, as well as a growing mental health crisis, we ask that you will continue to show us all that our identity is in you, that we are sons and daughters of the King. Finally, Father, we pray for those in our city who don't know you. We ask that you will move in their lives to reveal your incredible goodness to them, that they will realise their need of you and come to call you their Saviour. We pray that you will use us as your vessels to spread your word, equipping us even as jars of clay to carry the good news of the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we're desperate to see those closest to us come to a deep and transforming faith in Christ. We're thankful you, you listen to us, and we're thankful you're in charge. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. His mercy is more indeed. That's it for today's service. Let's say the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. See you next week. Have a good one.